Job chapter 4 and 5. Here, for this is the word of the Lord. Then Eliphaz, the Timonite, answered and said, If one ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? Yet who can keep from speaking? Behold, you have instructed many, and you have strengthened the weak hands. Your words have upheld him who is stumbling, and you have made firm the feeble knees. But now it has come to you, and you are impatient. It touches you, and you are dismayed. Is not your fear of God your confidence, and the integrity of your ways your hope? Remember who that was innocent ever perished, or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. By the breath of God they perish, and by the blast of his anger they are consumed. The roar of the lion, the voice of the fierce lion, the teeth of the young lions are broken. The strong lion perishes for lack of prey, and the cubs of the lioness are scattered. Now a word was brought to me stealthily. My ear received the whisper of it. Amid thoughts from visions of the night, when deep sleep falls on men, dread came upon me and trembling, which made all my bones shake. A spirit glided past my face. The hair on my flesh stood up. It stood still, but I could not discern its appearance. A form was before my eyes. There was silence. Then I heard a voice. Can mortal man be in the right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? Even in his servants he puts no trust. In his angels he charges with error. How much more those who dwell in houses of clay, whose foundation is in the dust, who are crushed like the moth. Between morning and evening they are beaten to pieces. They perish forever without anyone regarding it. Is not their tent cord plucked up within them? Do they not die, and that without wisdom? Call now. Is there anyone who will answer you? To which of the holy ones will you turn? Surely vexation kills the fool, and jealousy slays the simple. I have seen the fool taking root, but suddenly I cursed his dwelling. His children are far from safety. They are crushed in the gate, and there is no one to deliver them. The hungry eat his harvest, and he takes it even out of thorns, and the thirsty pant after his wealth. For affliction does not come from the dust, nor does trouble sprout from the ground. But man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. As for me, I would seek God. And to God would I commit my cause, who does great things and unsearchable, marvelous things without number. He gives rain on the earth and sends waters on the fields. He sets on high those who are lowly and those who mourn are lifted to safety. He frustrates the devices of the crafty so that their hands achieve no success. He catches the wise in their own craftiness and the schemes of the wily are brought to a quick end. They meet with darkness in the daytime and grope at noonday as in the night. But he saves the needy from the sword of their mouth and from the hand of the mighty. So the poor have hope and injustice shuts her mouth. Behold, blessed is the one whom God reproves. Therefore despise not the discipline of the Almighty. For he wounds, but he binds up. He shatters, but his hands heal. He will deliver you from six troubles. In seven, no evil shall touch you. In famine, he will redeem you from death. And in war, from the power of the sword. You shall be hidden from the lash of the tongue. And shall not fear destruction when it comes. 
At destruction and famine you shall laugh and shall not fear the beasts of the earth. For you shall be in league with the stones of the field and the beasts of the field shall be at peace with you. You shall know that your tent is at peace and you shall inspect your fold and miss nothing. You shall know also that your offspring shall be many and your descendants as the grass of the earth. You shall come to your grave in ripe old age like a sheaf gathered up in its season. Behold, this we have searched out. It is true. Hear and know it for your good. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Now, the book of Job is a story about suffering. But it is also a story about champions. There is God's chosen champion, Job, versus Satan's champions. Uh, Satan introduced his first champion in chapter 2 in Job's wife. Then comes Job's three wise and useless friends. They sat in silence for seven days until Job opened his mouth to curse the day of his birth. And it is at this point that they heard enough. So with good intentions to help snap him out of it, they begin to argue with Job back and forth with their own speeches. But these speeches will only help to lead Job into deeper despair. All the while they think they have been doing him some good. Have we ever experienced this? Have we ever received or given well-meaning advice that was no help at all? I'm sure we have. Now, before I get into the first speech by Eliphaz the Timonite, I would like to summarize their theology. See, what they believe about God forms the foundation for how they will speak to Job about God. Uh, This is why theology is important. Uh, This is why not only knowing what the Bible says, but also applying the Bible correctly is important. Because Job's friends would screw it up big time. And it was in part due to bad theology. And guess what? Satan utilizes bad theology. Uh, The Reverend Christopher Ash helps with summarizing their theology in four points. First, God is absolutely in control. So they have an orthodox view of the sovereignty of God, which means they're like Calvinists, right? And this we would agree with. Secondly, God is absolutely just and fair. Uh, This is another point that we would agree with, but it is lacking, as you will see in the next point. Thirdly, since God is just and fair, he always punishes wickedness, And bless his righteousness, not on judgment day, but in this world, or he would not be just. Uh, This is where we would disagree. Because what does this sound like? Well, this sounds like the prosperity gospel that teaches that as long as you have faith and you are righteous, only good will come to you. Good health, wealth, and prosperity. But the truth is, there is no absolute promise that the righteous will prosper in this world. As Paul says, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 
And fourthly, since God is just and fair, and he punishes wickedness and blesses righteousness all the time in this world, then Job must have sinned. He must have done something wrong for him to suffer this way. Sounds like some Christian counselors who place all the blame on the one who is suffering. There is no sympathy for Job. So in their theology, there is no grace, no cross, no sacrifice for sin, where the righteous would die in the place of the unrighteous to make the unrighteous righteous. Also notice that their theology is lacking. Because unlike Job, who mentioned the evil serpent Leviathan, there will be no mention of evil forces. You know, there are some who blame everything on the devil. The devil made me do it. Well, there are also some who blame everything on man. Everything is man's fault. Now, to their credit, not all of what his friends will say is wrong. They get some things right. But what they get wrong has disastrous implications for Job. So instead of sympathizing with Job or seeking to comfort Job, which was their original intent, Eliphaz preaches a false gospel that does no good for Job. It is a four-point sermon where he will question Job's consistency, his patience, and out of his self-righteousness and a misinterpretation of Job's situation, Eliphaz will call him to humility and to repent. So first, Eliphaz questions Job's consistency as a believer. After seven days of sitting in silence with his three wise friends, Job broke through the awkward silence with his lament. Only then did Eliphaz decide it was time to speak up. Eliphaz was the senior leader of the group and their representative. He speaks for the group. He begins his speech with respect, yet with some level of anger. He is disturbed by what Job just said in his lament, because to Eliphaz and the other two friends, it sounds like Job was cursing the goodness of God's providence. So Eliphaz responds to him by asking him, notice with some impatience, If one ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? Can I get a word in Job? Or are you going to snap? But something has to be said. Yet who can keep from speaking? You have crossed the line, Job. Now before we completely dismiss his friend, let us remember, he is sincerely trying to encourage Job. So he does what many of us would naturally do, When someone is down on themselves, we remind them of what they have accomplished in life and that the future is still hopeful. So he reminds Job of the good old days when Job was a judge, when he instructed many. He strengthened the weak hands. His words have upheld him who was stumbling and he made firm the feeble knees. Job was a man of justice who encouraged the weak to become strong. He spoke the right words to get others back on track. Something that Eliphaz should have learned from Job. Because his encouragement takes a bad turn when he acts like Job hasn't been suffering for months. 
He says, but it has come to you and you are impatient. It touches you and you are dismayed. In other words, be consistent, Job. You gave good advice to others before. Now you can't do the same for yourself. He kind of sounds like the world, doesn't he? The world is waiting for the Christian to fall. In order to say, where is your righteousness now? Is not your fear of God, your confidence, and the integrity of your ways, your hope? Let us pause here for a moment to notice what he is saying. He not only downplays Job's suffering, but also notice how he directs Job to the gifts rather than to the giver. He points Job back to himself and his works for comfort. Is not your fear Of God, your confidence and the integrity of your ways, your hope. Remember, for Eliphaz, God is just and fair, and so there is no room for grace. Job is suffering because he must have done something wrong. So if Job truly fears God and he has true integrity, he has no reason to feel the way he does. Eliphaz was a moralist. Preaching a moralistic sermon. He has a different view of God altogether. What he left out is the truth that God himself is to be our confidence and our hope. Psalm 46 and Psalm 146, right? Now, if the roles were reversed, I believe that Job would have said the same thing. They both believe that if you are just and righteous then you will receive blessings and live long and prosperous lives. They bought into the prosperity gospel. That's just the way the world works. Bad things happen to bad people and good things happen to good people. Listen to what he asks next. Remember, who that was innocent ever perished? Or where were the upright cut off? Have you ever seen the good die young? He is telling Job if he is truly righteous, then he has nothing to worry about. And Job should know because Job was a judge. And he witnessed and took part in the guilty being punished and the innocent set free. But the problem with Eliphaz's theory was that Job was suffering. He is not prospering. Neither has he perished. So he is in limbo. Not only is his future in balance, but also the question of whether or not he is right with God hangs in the balance as well, according to Eliphaz's theory. See, this was the mindset of the native people of Malta when the Apostle Paul was bitten by a viper. They automatically concluded that Paul was a murderer. Why? Because vipers don't bite innocent people. Supposedly. I'm not willing to test that out. Now, another thing to notice about Eliphaz is that he not only trusts in his worldly wisdom and piety, but he also relied on his own experience. We will see this more going forward. His experience becomes the authority in his speech. He continues by saying, as I have seen, emphasis on the eye, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. You reap what you sow. 
Uh, and yes, this is a general rule of life, one that we find throughout the scripture. And, and there are worldly benefits for being righteous. But the question is, is it an absolute rule in this world and in this age? Well, no. Rewards for righteousness and judgment on the wicked will come not until the end of the age, as Jesus explains in Matthew chapter 13. But he continues by speaking of God's judgment. And it is true. A lot of what he says is true. But he leaves no room for a final judgment day. By the breath of God they perish. And by the blast of his anger they are consumed. All true. The roar of the lion. The voice of the fierce lion. The teeth of the young lions are broken. The strong lion perishes for lack of prey, and the cubs of the lioness are scattered. He goes through the entire lion family to say that judgment will come upon all the wicked and their families will suffer because of it. But the question is, when? How does that match with the reality that right now the wicked often prosper and the righteous suffer? Just look around at the world today. Just look in our Bibles. We can come up with a list of martyrs who have died for righteousness sake. But the truth is that one day in the future there will be a day of reckoning and all debts will be settled. That indeed is true. So first Eliphaz pointed Job to a false hope in works righteousness Now he begins to indirectly accuse Job of wrong by saying, you reap what you sow. If you die, then we know that you sowed death. So all of this was to tell Job, you need to live consistently with what you believe. If you believe that the righteous will prosper in this life, then what are you so worried about? What are you lamenting over? Unless, of course, Job isn't righteous. Again, what is faulty about this is that he is relying on his own wisdom, his own experience, his faulty theology rests in limited human observation rather than divine revelation. This is the mistake that many Christians make even today. It's not so much, thus says the Lord, rather it is, thus says what's true to me. What seems right to me. See, we can make that same mistake when we rely on what we see and experience rather than what God has said and what God has promised. Based on what he has observed, he concluded that the righteous will prosper always and the wicked will suffer always. Isn't this the majority view of Christianity today? The majority of Christians in this country, believe in this. Remember, we often believe that the Reformed are the majority. We're really the minority, right? We're really the minority out of the millions and millions of Christians in the world today. But this is the same false theology that many believe. And this brings no comfort to Job because it keeps Job's eyes on worldly rewards. So Eliphaz questioned Job's consistency. Now, secondly, he questions 
his patience. As Eliphaz is building up his argument to convince Job to think differently about his situation, he appeals to his own experience again, but this time he resorts to mysticism. He claims to receive a vision or special revelation. He is saying, God told me to tell you. Right? Have we ever heard that before? I'm sure all of us have. Now listen to this. Now a word was brought to me stealthily. My ear received the whisper of it. Amid thoughts from visions of the night, when deep sleep falls on men, dread came upon me, and trembling, what a nightmare, which made all my bones shake. A spirit glided past my face. The hair of my flesh stood up. It stood still, but I could not discern its appearance. A form was before my eyes. Now, so far, this sounds a lot like the night visions, which uh, the Lord would reveal himself to the patriarchs and the prophets, such as Abraham and Ezekiel. But there is a major difference here. The major difference is that there is no clear source for the vision. The Lord is known to reveal himself as the Lord. And it doesn't say anywhere that this was from the Lord. So we must conclude this wasn't a vision from the Lord. And it wasn't a word from the Lord. Now what was that word? He continues, there was silence. Then I heard a voice. Can mortal man be in the right before God? Could a man be pure before his maker? Now stop there for a moment. Who does this sound like? Well, some say it sounds like Job himself. But no. Who is trying to convince God in the first two chapters that there is none who is right before God, not even his chosen one, Job? Well, Satan. This was Satan's challenge to God, and now he is trying to prove it. Eliphaz is doing Satan's bidding. He says this, even in his servants he puts no trust. And his angels he charges with error. Like who? Satan. How much more are those who dwell in houses of clay, speaking of humans who are made of dust, whose foundation is in the dust, who are crushed like the moth. Between morning and evening, they are beaten to pieces. They perish forever without anyone regarding it. Is not their tent cord plucked up within them? Do they not die and that without wisdom? Now, we concluded this was not a direct revelation from God. What he is saying has some truth to it. But that is part of the deception. See, false theology and false teaching is often shrouded with a garment of truth. It looks shiny and appealing on the outside, but on the inside, it is dead. We, we see this in the false religions and the cults of today. Uh, there is always some truth to what they say, or it would not appeal to us. We hear politicians and celebrities and even some of our unbelieving friends spout all this morality, which for the most part we would say, yeah, I agree with you, but it is rooted in dead, false theology. It is not a word from God. It is a word from Satan seeking to distract us. That is how Satan works. Satan is not going to approach us with someone who just flat out denies 
the gospel or flat out denies God. He approaches us with someone who bears some truth. That's how Satan works. Satan knows God. He knows scripture. He knows theology. But he twists it for his own purposes. He did it with Eve and he tried to do it with our Lord Jesus. Because what Eliphaz is saying here is, who is man to question the providence of God? What is man's wisdom in light of God's wisdom? Man cannot judge God's ways. He is made of dust and he is fragile. All true. All of that is true. But again, there is something missing. He doesn't see that the truth of God's wisdom is displayed in the cross. It is displayed in suffering. Wisdom is displayed in the suffering of his chosen man, Job. And that God is a covenant-keeping God. And that God was with Job. Nowhere does Eliphaz affirm that Job is a child of God. God declared him as such in chapters 1, 2, and later in chapter 42. And if you are a child of God, you are right with God, despite yourself, and you have nothing to fear in life or in death. Heidelberg Catechism question 1. What is my only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own, but belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. There are no gospel promises coming from Eliphaz's lips. That is equivalent to those in the church who love to drive home the law, but withhold the gospel of God's free grace. How dare we? Listen to what Eliphaz says. Call now, is there anyone who will answer you? To which of the holy ones or the angels will you turn? They can't help you either. There is no one on earth or in heaven who will answer you. And here is where he questions Job's patience after months of extreme suffering. Surely vexation kills the fool and jealousy slays the simple. And again, he makes himself and his experience the authority. I have seen the fool taking root, but suddenly I cursed his dwelling. He is not saying that he himself cursed it, but that he observed his dwelling and declared it as cursed. He makes himself God and judges the fool. Now to dig the knife deeper into Job's heart through his back, ask yourself, who is this fool that Eliphaz saw and observed? Who is he using as a sermon illustration? It sounds pretty close to Job, doesn't it? He said he saw the fool and declared his dwelling cursed. His children are far from safety. They are crushed in the gate and there is no one to deliver them. The hungry, think of the Sabians and the Chaldeans, the thieves who stole all that Job possessed, eat his harvest and he takes it even out of thorns and the thirsty pant after his wealth. So he just said that bad things happen to fools and based on this description, Job sounds like he is a fool. Because what Job went through does not come from nowhere. It comes from human sinfulness. But the question is, whose sinfulness? 
Affliction doesn't come from the dust, nor does trouble sprout from the ground. You reap what you sow. Job must have done something foolish for this to happen to him. He says, but man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. Uh, Sparks comes from a compound word uh, for sons of Reshef. Here's more pagan mythology for you. The god of destruction, plague, and pestilence, who according to tradition, shoots arrows of trouble on his foes. So he finally accused Job of sin. And to summarize what Eliphaz is telling him is that he has no grounds to question God's wisdom and providence, and he needs to just take it like a man. You wouldn't want Eliphaz as a chaplain in a hospital, to say the least. No comfort in his words. It was better when he was silent. So as he accuses Job of sin, what does he do now? What is the responsibility of any so-called preacher? Well, so far he questioned Job's consistency. He questioned his patience. Thirdly, after he accuses him of sin, he calls him to turn to God. At this point, he views Job as just a prideful, uh, grumbling idiot. So he calls him to humility in a not-so-humble way. Because he does so by first pointing to himself again. As for me, if I were you, I would seek God, and to God would I commit my cause. Finally, he brings God into the picture. And from this point on, what Eliphaz will say of God, and of the need to humble oneself and to repent, is mostly true. We have some good theology here, folks. Listen to this as he speaks of God. Who does great things and unsearchable, marvelous things without number. He gives rain on the earth and sends waters on the fields. He sets on high those who are lowly and those who mourn are lifted to safety. He frustrates the devices of the crafty so that their hands achieve no success. The theology is so good that even Paul quotes this text in 1 Corinthians 3, calling the Corinthians to become fools so that they would become wise according to God. But Paul uses it in the opposite way. When he says he catches the wise in their own craftiness. In the schemes of the wily, these are the tricksters, those who are skilled in manipulation, are brought to a quick end. They meet with darkness in the daytime and grope at noonday as in the night. But he saves the needy from the sword of their mouth and from the hand of the mighty. So the poor have hope and injustice shuts her mouth. All of this is true. But it is based on a misunderstanding of Job's situation and his standing before God. Now throughout the history of preaching there have been many who love to preach topical sermons. Uh, This is when you Pick a topic, and then you pick a verse that supports that topic, and you bring in all these other Bible verses to support your conclusions. Now, the Reformers did this, and I would say they did this faithfully. Uh, The Puritans did this. Uh, Some contemporary preachers still do this. If I were to preach topically on the rest of this chapter, I would have 18 sermons for you just from this chapter. But I won't. I won't. Because truly, I believe that would be a bit deceptive because of the context. Although what Eliphaz says here is true, he says it as what we would call a windback. 
He is preaching hot air. He says it without knowledge of the truth of Job's situation and his standing before God. And I would add, he says it with a lack of knowledge of God himself. Yet, uh, I know God uses even a donkey to preach his word. But that is when his people are actually guilty. But the question is, is Job guilty? And is he suffering because he is guilty? Eliphaz would conclude, well, yes, that's the point of my sermon today. So he calls Job to humble himself before a God who is marvelous, unsearchable in his judgments and inscrutable in his ways. He blesses us with rain so that crops would grow. He lifts up the lowly and rescues the humble. So be humble, Job. Because he's just going to knock you back down. After hearing this, only a fool would stand prideful before God. But the ironic thing is, is that Eliphaz is the one who sounds like the fool. Why? Because he says all this out of a misinterpretation of Job's extraordinary circumstances. He downplays Job's suffering as if it were only moderate, and he is uncharitable in his attitude. Fourthly and finally, he calls Job to repent. And he does so by suggesting that Job should gladly receive the Lord's discipline. Behold, blessed is the one whom God reproves. Therefore, despise not the discipline of the Almighty. Again, good theology. The author of Hebrews says, For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? God disciplines those whom he loves for their good. If you are not disciplined for sin, then you are not a legitimate child of God. But the problem is, What he has just described so far as discipline sounds more like punishment. Eliphaz doesn't understand the difference between discipline and punishment. Job is a child of God and God doesn't punish his children for their sins. He disciplines his children. But they are completely forgiven in Christ. Whatever suffering we are going through, it is not punishment for sin. It may or may not be discipline. In the case of Job, he was not being disciplined. He tells him why he should repent. And notice this is where he gets it completely wrong. For he, that is God, wounds, but he binds up. He shatters, but his hands heal. He will deliver you from six troubles. In seven, no evil shall touch you. In famine, he will redeem you from death and in war from the power of the sword. You shall be hidden from the lash of the tongue. I wonder if Job thought of Eliphaz's tongue when he said this. And you shall not fear destruction when it comes. At destruction and famine you shall laugh and shall not fear the beasts of the earth. For you shall be in league. This means you shall be at peace with the stones of the field. For all of you farmers out there, you know that stones in the field where you plan to plant seeds are not good. In Bible times... Covering a field with stones was an act of war because it symbolized attacking the crops which sustain life. And so if Job receives this discipline and repents, there will be rewards such as peace from war and happiness. And all that he had lost will be restored to him again. There will be covenant blessings as we will see 
uh, later promised to Israel as a nation. There will be peace between him and God. But not only that, but between him and the land, his farm and his animals. And the beasts of the field shall be at peace with you. You shall know that your tent is at peace, that is his home. And you shall inspect your fold and miss nothing. Your animals will not be stolen, Job. You shall know also that your offspring shall be many. And your descendants as the grass of the earth. He would have more children than those he had lost. You shall come to your grave in ripe old age and not die from this skin disease. Like a sheaf gathered up in its season. Behold, this we have searched out. It is true. Hear and know it for your good, Job. He gets the feeling that Job is losing confidence in this prosperity gospel. And so he reminds him that we are wise men. And we know it's true. Now what is wrong with Eliphaz's call to repent? First, he is assuming that Job is guilty of sin. See, there is a difference between preaching to a congregation and counseling someone one-on-one. In preaching, you always assume that everyone is guilty of sin. That's part of preaching. But you always apply the balm of the gospel which saves and heals the open wounds of the conscience. While in counseling someone, you don't assume sin until there is a confession. Counseling requires listening. So Eliphaz misses every opportunity here. Secondly, he is promising him that if he repents and turns to God, he will receive plenty of earthly rewards. The irony is that Eliphaz is encouraging Job to fear God and repent for the rewards and not for God himself. He is not calling Job to repent because God is God. And he needs to repent, right? But that he'll get something out of it. He is telling him to fear God for a reason. Just as Satan told God, does Job fear God for no reason? Eliphaz says, well, here, Job, follow God for a reason. You'll get all this stuff back if you repent. So how do we counter this bad preaching of Eliphaz? First we must identify the fact that Eliphaz's speech is based on worldly wisdom. Worldly wisdom based on self. So we are to beware of self-righteousness. Spiritual pride is the worst kind of pride to have. Because we receive everything from God as a gift. Right? To him, the suffering of the cross would be folly. But the foolishness of God is wiser than men, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Secondly, don't rely on your own experiences. Here we need a biblical view of suffering. The reasons why you are suffering are not necessarily directly tied to your sin. Yes, he disciplines, but God does not punish his children. Suffering does not mean you are no longer a child of God. Job was a believer and one of the greatest in the Bible. 
We know he believed in the atonement for sin through the sacrifices he offered, which means he believed in the coming Messiah. And so he was already right with God. Eliphaz gets that part completely wrong. And Job's suffering ultimately points to the suffering of Christ on the cross. No one suffered more than Job in the Bible except for Christ. And if the Son of God suffered, so will those who are called by His name. See, we can only understand Job's suffering and our suffering in light of the cross of Christ and the gospel. Through suffering comes salvation. Through suffering comes glory. As many will celebrate this week, the Passion Week. We must all always remember that through the cross also came glory. There was resurrection on the other side of this story. Listen to Paul. If we are God's children, then we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. The best Eliphaz could do was present to Job a message full of worldly wisdom that will lead Job into deeper despair. Because our message is not, you just need to do better or try harder. That is the message of the world. Ours is that we are to cling to the cross of Christ. Any counsel without the cross of Christ cannot comfort. Paul says this, For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. Without the cross and without Christ, there is no comfort and Job's suffering would make no sense. As disciples, we are called to take up the cross and oftentimes we suffer like Job. And it is not always because of persecution. And we do suffer unjustly. I say we suffer unjustly because in Christ, all our sins have been forgiven and we are no longer objects of wrath, but of grace. Yet our suffering is necessary, not as payment for sin, but to build our character and transform us into the likeness of Christ. Paul says that through Christ, we stand in the hope of the glory of God. But it's not just about glory, but we also rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. See, Eliphaz lacked in bringing hope to Job, the hope of God as his redeemer and deliverer. The hope that at the end of this, he will be closer to God. If you are in Christ today, unlike the rest of the world, you have hope. For you have a redeemer and a deliverer. So don't waste your time. Don't waste your suffering. But use all of your time and your suffering to draw closer to him. Amen.